Welcome to You Might Hate This Book, where each episode one of us will recommend a book to the other. A book that we love that we suspect our co-host might hate. Well, hate is a strong word. How about falls outside of their traditional scope of interest. Fine, that's fair. A book they would never have chosen to read otherwise. We'll read the assigned book, then come back together to discuss. Did you love it? Or did you hate it? So you agree we might hate it. (sighs) Yeah, you might hate it. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Hannah. And you might hate this book. How's it going? I think even though I've only had like one conversation with you this week, I can (laughs) say this with some level of certainty. This week sucked. Oh, yeah. Well, it's the end of a semester. It's the last week of. Yeah. Yeah. If you work in academics, this week sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I don't I think the whole world. I'm not in academics, but like this week was just bad. Like Kyle and I both had a bad week. I felt like you had a bad all week long. It has been wet and dark and gray and like. Not even pleasantly cold or pleasantly warm, no. just like right in the middle. It it has been it so sucked. dreary. Yeah, it's been dreary. But yeah. I've looked forward to this. I have to. Grades <laughs> were due at 3 p.m. today, so like I'm yeah. sort of free. I got an extension, but <laughs> it's okay. You do what you gotta do, you know. <laughs> yeah, like I've been looking forward to this all week because I've just had like a crappy yeah, week. Me too. And me too. Yeah. As you know, we're putting our dog down in a couple of days. Yeah. So on top of the really bad, like, gloomy week. You have this hanging over you. Yeah. And I'm on mood-stabilizing medication, so I can really only get so low or so high, which is the point, and I like it that way. Right. But I haven't been able to process my feelings because I can't feel them all the way. Right. And so I can just, like, there's just this... I can see what I should be feeling, and there's this nice little safety net holding me like 20 feet above it, which Mm -hmm. is exactly the point. But I have not been able to process, and so I'm, like, not okay. And then our good friend, Mirakami, would call it a metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) It's been, like, foggy and gray, and just I feel like I'm just, like, standing between there's like a fog between me and like what I need to process and like the brain fog. Yeah. And so I've just felt like very out of sorts and very like I one time had something on my hand that had to be cut open by a doctor and they like numbed it, but I watched them do it. And I watched like the scalpel cut into my hand and I was like, I should be feeling this. This should really hurt. But, But then I didn't feel it. I'm obviously grateful to not have to feel it. But it was so disorienting to, like, mm-hmm. watch someone cut my skin. And then – so I've been disoriented. I've felt – I feel loose and weird. And so I'm, like, my brain is a little – Oh, I'm sorry, My brain's friend. a little fuzzy. That's no, no I really want to, like – I want to do this and have this oh, conversation because yeah. I think it'll help me feel better. But – Well, and as opposed to last week when we were – not sure if we were dreaming or in reality. <laughs> we are very squarely grounded in reality this because week. So you can plant your feet and, you know, be comfortable Yeah, in that. So I, I feel like I just needed to, like, point out that I might have some, Feelings? Yeah, some brain fog and whatever. I don't know. Yeah. I just feel a little out of sorts. And so... That's okay. Maybe that will reflect itself in our conversation. So I just wanted to say that. But... I think this episode will drop, what, the last... The last of the year. So, goodbye, 2022. Yes. <laughs> goodbye, the, brain fog. By the time this episode <laughs> airs, I will be safely in sunny California, yes. where there should not be any dreary weather or rain. It will not be gray, because the weather there never changes. Yes. And I will have already celebrated Christmas with my family, so... Mm. Oh, I can't wait. Have fun, future Stephanie. <laughs> yes. You are in California right now. And have fun, all of our listeners, on your holiday. Yes, happy yeah. holidays holidays and i'm excited to talk about this book with you yeah (laughs) um i finished it like over a week ago so so what i was going to ask you about this book is i asked you before i assigned it to you Uh are you okay with true crime and you said yes but then later you mentioned i don't really want to get into nonfiction books and i was like well hannah the next one i assigned you is is a nonfiction. It's a true yeah. crime. Did you understand at the time when I said true crime that that meant nonfiction? Or did you think that was like, 
a fiction based on... No, I knew it was okay. nonfiction. I think I was just thinking of a different genre of nonfiction when right. I said that. Uh, the second you're not your kind of nonfiction. Yeah, the kind of nonfiction I've had to read for the last year and a half in grad school. It's not this. Please don't assign me no, anything no. you had to read in well, grad school. You're not, well, no, I will not. Well, <laughs> you're going to, aren't you? I already have. Uh, you you haven't read it yet, though. That's fine. But it's not nonfiction, so okay. there's that. I will allow you to assign me anything. It's fine. That's really, really magnanimous of you. <laughs> I Merry Christmas. <laughs> I think that's the point of what we're doing. It so is. You it know, is. assign me whatever you want. Okay. And you, you know, you did for me as well. So you want to introduce the book? Okay. So the book this week is I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. Mm-hmm. What did you know about this book before... I, I, it. I knew the subtitle. <laughs> the subtitle. <laughs> Which is One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer. That's literally all I knew about it. I have heard of the Golden State Killer probably either from you or my sister Natalie, who is also into true crime. So I knew she is. and I have talked about it together in front of you. So okay, well, the answer's both. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, so like I knew he existed, but I know zero about him i knew zero about the author at least by name when i started the book yeah okay so i'll give a little synopsis yes go ahead um so for more than 10 years a mysterious and violent predator committed 50 sexual assaults in northern california before moving south where he continued to commit 10 or more murders then he disappeared eluding capture by multiple police forces and some of the best detectives in the area uh, 30 years later, Michelle McNamara, a true crime journalist who had a, like, true crime blog mm-hmm. website called truecrimediary.com, um, was determined to find him, and she named him the Golden State Killer. Michelle poured over police reports, interviewed victims, and completely just engulfed herself in online communities that were obsessed with the case and started working on this book. Before its release, Michelle died of an accidental overdose. The book was finished by her husband, Patton Oswalt, and some of the investigators working with her for the research. Uh The book came out in February of 2018, only one month before someone would be arrested for these crimes. Just crazy timing. Yeah. I'm sure conspiracy theorists are all over that. Yeah. I think it's just coincidence. Yeah. And I'll just... Give, I guess, a content warning for this episode. We're obviously talking about a serial killer, a Mm -hmm. real-life serial killer, and serial rapist. Yes. Prolific in his crimes, yes. I do not intend to talk much about him or his crimes much. I I intend to focus on this book and Michelle. Mm -hmm. And so while this is about a serial killer, we're not going to talk about murder and rape. No, but if you pick up this book, just know... Yeah, that that's is part what of it its is. Content. Yeah, so our conversation will not revolve around that, but just wanted to give everyone a heads up. Yeah. All right. Okay. You want to mm-hmm. predict what I thought of it? I I think it was definitely not the topic that you would be interested in. If you were going to pick up a nonfiction, you would not pick up this probably. Okay. Um, I can't imagine that you had qualms with the writing. Like, I don't think you would give it a one star, badly written garbage. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say you gave it a three. You're right. Yay! Yes, I gave... I'm slowly moving up. I gave your first one one, then two, and now I'm at three. Yeah. Okay. And I debated, like, three or four. Okay. Um. Yeah, so you're exactly right. The writing... Her writing's great. That, yeah. This is... As far as, like, the craft of writing, this is the best book you've assigned me yeah. so far. Um, very readable on a sentence level. Yeah. So I guess I'll just get started with yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, so my biggest problem with this book is the way it is structured and organized on a macro level. Like, okay. So this, the Golden State Killer was prolific in his crimes that he committed. And he had like three stages, right? There was, and they each had names because the police didn't realize yeah. at first that it was all the same guy. Yeah. Because he progressed from the Visalia Ransacker, where he was a burglar, um, which incidentally, McNamara, when she wrote this and when she was still alive, they weren't even entirely sure it was the same person. Yeah. That was only after they arrested him. Yeah. Um, And then there was the East Area Rapist. And then there was the original Night Stalker. Yeah. So you've got these three, like, nicknamed culprits, and it's all the same guy that she put together. So that's a lot. And it's over how many years? Like... A lot. A lot of years. (laughs) Um, I I think it was, like, at least 10 years of, like, pretty consistent killing. And so... Or 
criming because not yeah, all of it. Yeah, <laughs> lots of crime. Um, so that's a lot to deal with. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, and I'm all about if you want to experiment with form and do something different with structure and not always have a straightforward narrative. But I think with that amount of real life... Lots of facts to drop on your face. It is. And there were a lot of detectives that she talked to throughout the different stages that were a part of, you know, one stage but not the other. And I got lost in where we were because the way the book is structured does not start with the Visalia Ransacker and then the East Area Rapist. It actually starts with one of the later murders and then it just... Yeah. Like, it's definitely not chronological (laughs) and it's not even necessarily... It's not a one-to-one. By subject. Yeah, it's like, not a one-to-one, like, back and forth, like, we're going to the beginning, we're going to the end. We're, it's It starts with one of the middle murders he committed and, like, then goes back and talks for, at length about the East Area Rapist period. And then it goes into that ransacker and then back to the yeah. murders. And there's different detective names in each section that I was just... I just got kind of lost. And that might not be McNamara because she... She did not structure this book. Right. That's So that's the other thing with this book. It's like there are some flaws with it that may not have existed had, had she, she lived, lived to finish yeah. it. So, um, but even as an editor, I was like, this is... I don't know why they chose that. Yeah. And like for any kind of nonfiction, the way you're going to d- arrange it is, you know, subjective. Mm-hmm. Like, do you go chronologically or do you go more with like subjects that fit together? Or do you go more with, right. you know, a, the point you're trying to prove or a hypothesis that you're trying to prove? And it has been a long time since I read this book. Mm-hmm. And so I don't necessarily remember how it was structured, but I do remember that it was not in any, like, I can tell you what order this book goes in. Like right. it wasn't in any of those forms that I would think you either picked this or that or this or that. And I didn't even pick up on, like, the common themes like you were talking mm-hmm. about. Like, she grouped, like, the Visalia Ransacker is, stage is a group by itself. And most of the rape is a group by itself. But then the murders were kind of peppered throughout. Yeah. And then to complicate it further, there were these periodic sections of, like, memoir. Mm-hmm. Which I, I like memoir. Yeah. I'm going to assign you a memoir in the near future. Um, that is a genre I enjoy. And so it wasn't, like... It wasn't that I didn't enjoy reading about McNamara's life, but it didn't seem relevant to what... It was just, like, an interlude, like, hey, we're just going to drop in Yeah, like, she talks about the original unsolved murder that happened in her hometown hometown outside of Chicago that inspired her. So, like, I get that. Mm -hmm. I get the connection there. Um, It came at a weird time. It was, like, chapter three or four. I feel like I remember this, too, and, And like, talking about her blog, and that also felt kind of... Inserted? Yeah. Yeah, like, it could have been at the beginning. And then... You know, I got the relevance of that, but then it had little snippets of, like, her relationship with her mom and then her relationship with Patton. And then there was this little blurb about her neighbor that had a burglary. I see where it was going. Like, I feel like I can see her vision for how to weave those together. Because, like, one of the murder victims was estranged from her daughter when she was killed. And, you know, not the the faceless killer and the burglary that happened at her house. Like, I feel like I see where she was going and I... You know, I feel like this is duh, but so wish she could have finished it yeah. according to her vision. Yeah, she might have written those things down with a plan of where to put them. Right. And then whoever was going through her notes was like, well, we have to insert this because Michelle wrote it. And yeah, but I feel like there was not enough of it to justify it all being in there. It felt very just like inserted and was not frequent enough to feel like this separate narrative that was woven in. Yeah. Um. So it felt a little gratuitous in that way. So that was a little frustrating. And then there was just, it's broken up into parts, part one, part two, and part three. Part three is the shortest, and that is largely written by um, the two other guys you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is Paul Haynes. He was like a collaborator with her online, yeah. Billy Jensen. And then there's an afterward by Patton Oswald, um, which that was sweet and heartbreaking yes. and lovely to read. Uh, but the other stuff was... <laughs> So one of the things that's really awesome about her writing is she's a good writer. Mm-hmm. Like, I do not feel like that is in dispute. If you're going to write a Yay. review, like, <laughs> she is obviously good at her craft. Yeah. So then, no offense to Paul Haynes and Billy Jensen, but when I got to part three and I started reading, I was like, You should oh. be a detective instead of a writer. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> this is not interesting. Um, and Maybe then, you should be something else. It's not long, so there's that. And yeah. then there's also, like, it starts out with all this glowing praise of Michelle, which, like, I get they were her friends and they miss her and, and her death is tragic, but it was also just felt weird. Like, it didn't feel weird when Patton Oswald was writing it, but yeah. I'm like, we don't need this in the middle of the book. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. The afterward was fine. So, yeah, that's more of a critique on her editors, I suppose, whoever they may be. And I don't know, because she was already under contract 
to write this book when she died. So I don't know if like they had to put memoir in it, if that was part of her contract. I really have no idea how that would have worked. It could be another one of those instances of publishers, you know, saying what they want versus what the writer had. And yeah, first of all, authors often get control taken right out of their hand about, Mm -hmm. you know, even the title of the book. It's like, no, we're picking this instead. Yes. So and especially with her not actually being there to stand her ground for a lot of things. And I'm sure it was decided by committee a bunch of times, like which way something was going to go. And I'm sure there was a lot they left out. She had copious notes. That is clear. Yes. (laughs) Um, That was probably a slog to wade through, I imagine. Yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to do it. No, even for somebody that's like interested in this. Yeah, not me. No. (laughs) (laughs) So those are like the big critiques of it. And then also some just genre like, I do not care about DNA. I read the word non-secretor way too many times for my taste. (laughs) Like, I, anytime it started talking about DNA or geo-profiling, I was just, like, checked out a little bit. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, those are the the big critiques. But I did did enjoy it for my first true crime. And I, despite those shortcomings, if you're going to introduce somebody to true crime, I think this is a good, I think you chose well. Okay. I'm so happy that I gave you your first true crime. Yes. It, it, well, and here's why. Here's why I don't like true crime. Well, here's two reasons. One is, okay, when you talked about romance and how you have to be good at storytelling because everybody knows the ending, if you're writing true crime, you're not even coming up with the story. Like, <laughs> so you got to be a really good writer. Yes. To, to make it good. So I don't feel like I'm writing or I'm reading a history report. Yeah. Right. So she's a good writer. Check one. Um, and then two, I don't often like the way true crime feels exploitative. We are going to talk about that. Yes, of the victims. Um, she does not. Yes. She does not. She, one of her, one of the things she does with her writing is she makes the victims, I think, very real. And she, the details that she includes about the crimes do not feel gratuitous. It does not feel like she's going for shock value, like those horror movies with all the blood and the jump scares, which I also don't like. Yeah. Like, that's not, she includes some of the horrific details, but she tells only... tells you what you need to know to understand what you're reading. Right, exactly. And to understand why this man is so bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is all in service of showing the victims of these crimes and humanizing them. Um, and really late in the book... I wanted to share this because she she um, works with one cold case detective, Paul Holes, mm-hmm. a whole lot. She goes back to some of the original detectives who are now old men, right? But he is more her contemporary. He's, you know, these crimes happened when he was 10. So they have a lot of conversations. And I wanted to share this. It's actually in the part three uh, that was put together by her, her friends whose writing is not as good as hers. <laughs> um, but this part she did write. She They put an excerpt. This was an excerpt from a half-finished section titled Sacramento 2013. So this is Michelle's writing, and she's talking about Paul and his, Paul Holes and his search for the killer. And it says, Sometimes when he thought of the destruction wrought by one faceless man, not just the victims, but also the victims' families, the detectives' shame, the wasted money and time and effort and family time and ruined marriages and sex foregone for lifetimes... Holes rarely swore. Wasn't him. But when he thought about all this, he just felt F you. F you. (laughs) And of course, she spelled it out. But I, like, I appreciated that because it wasn't just this, like, reportery, oh, here, you know, here's the semen sample and here's the blood spatter. And, like, these are real people. And when you are a victim of any kind of trauma, the trauma isn't just in the past. I hate that phrase. Like, oh, it happened in the past. No, trauma... It's happening to you all the time. Trauma is a present issue you are trying to live through every day. Yeah. No matter when it happened. And I think she makes that really clear with her writing and the way she treats her victims. And I very much appreciated that. Yeah. Which is why I think this is a good introduction to true crime. And then just, she she's just a good writer. Like, she can turn a phrase. Mm-hmm. She adds a lot of detail that make you feel like you were there. Like, I remember there's, like, she mentioned a slug on a baseball bat. Like, that was yeah. found. Like, just those little things. And, you know, I like little details like that. So, um, that was good. She was describing the detectives that she was talking to. And she says, I wasn't a native in the land of the literal-minded, but I enjoyed my time there. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's... That's quippy. That's so a writer. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and then this. So a lot of the victims lived in like cul-de-sacs. 
And I loved this sentence that was at the end of one of the chapters. The ear, which is short for East Area Rapist. The ear is a card face down on a table. Our speculation is a cul-de-sac. Round and round we go. And like I was like, oh, this, this is good writing. Yeah. Um, so I really, I really enjoyed that, um, despite the bigger structural issues that were probably not her fault. Yeah. Um, I will say... I also watched the whole documentary on HBO. Did you? <laughs> I did. Because, as you mentioned, this was published before the killer was caught. Mm-hmm. And so there's like a little inserted blurb at the end of the book you gave me. It was like a republish. But I still wanted to know more. I was yeah. like, I just read this whole book about this guy. I want to know who he is. So I yeah. watched the whole HBO documentary. It's pretty well done. And that also made clear that, like, she had struggled with the memoir portions more than the um, true crime portion, so she didn't have as much of that, I think, yeah. as the other part, which might have contributed to that unevenness. Yeah, how it was ultimately put together. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's my general general take on the book. Okay. I, I enjoyed reading it um, for the most part. Uh, you know, I didn't enjoy learning. It made me creeped out. Yeah. For sure. Like, I started thinking about how I locked my windows and my doors. Yeah. That's what I was... Most thinking, you're not going to like this book because it's about a serial killer. Yeah. So, like, as far as the writing and whatever, y- you liked the book. Yes. How did you deal with the, you're going to hate this book because it's about a serial killer? Well, I did not read it at night. Right. I knew that going into it. Um, Only read it when the husband's home. Didn't read it at night at all. And I'm a sun-up person. Like, I do my best work when the sun's up. When the sun goes down, I'm down. <laughs> I'm done. Which means 4.30 bedtime. This time yeah, I know. That's why when it rains all the time, it's so depressing. But yeah, I could not read it. And I had to take some breaks from it. That's fair. You know, it was just because one of the things she highlights is that the facelessness of this guy for so long. And yeah. oh, it's just, and then he, he got into people's houses so easily. Alarmingly easily. And I, look, we live in a small creep. You live in a cold I live in a <laughs> We live in a small, sleepy town next to a large highway. Like, I was just like, oh, this is awful. And then the way, like, some of the details were tough to hear. Yeah, because he he also often attacked couples. Yeah. And uh, I felt really bad for the male victims. Like, he did yeah. not rape them. He left them in the bedroom tied up while he took their wives. And that just, ugh, Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. And the kid, he did it with kids in the house, too. That was the other thing, which oh. I have two children. Like, I can't. Nope. I'm out. Yeah. But you didn't hate it. No. Even with all that. No. Even with, I just had to be intentional about when and where I read it. Okay. And, you know, self-care. Right. That's why I thought you would hate it. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that you didn't. No, hate it. I'm no. glad I didn't ruin your life. No, you, <laughs> you didn't don't ruin sleep. my life. You don't sleep at night anymore. Do you have more to say about the book, or would you like to hear why I loved it so much? Uh, I want to hear why you loved it. Yeah. Okay. So my history with the book is that I read it right after it came out. And so did you have had the Golden State Killer been caught when you read it? No. Ooh. Okay. Tell me more. <laughs> yes. So I read it right when it came out, and I was turned on to it by a true crime podcast that I listened to that like hyped it before it came out, and I was like, oh, that sounds like something. Is I it my read. favorite murder? Yeah. Because Karen is on yeah, the, the documentary. documentary. Yeah. Yeah. I listened to it on audio, which is, like, kind of even creepier. (laughs) I I did for a good chunk of it. Yeah. It just gripped me. Like, Mm -hmm. I was in it. And most nonfiction are like this, where their their hour count is much lower. You can listen to it in just a work day. And I remember just, like, coming up from the surface of this Mm -hmm. book and being like, oh, my goodness, I was so deep down in it. And the way I wept at the end, at the letter to an oh, old man. Oh, I didn't mention that. Yes. Oh, very my good. goodness. And then weeks later, I was scrolling through Twitter, bored at work. Not the job I have now. Right, right. <laughs> um, and Patton Oswalt, I saw a tweet from Patton Oswalt saying, I think you did it, Michelle. <gasps> and then oh. all of a sudden, like, Karen Kilgariff from... Uh, my favorite murder, uh-huh. who you just mentioned. I saw a tweet from her too, and I was like, "Wait, wait, 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 wait what? Stop! Um, what?" And it was like someone was just arrested for this murder, and like because I had felt so invested in this, I was like, "Yes, get him!" Yeah. Like I, I like stood up in my chair. I was like, "Okay, uh, they got, they got him, they got him. Maybe they got him." And Patton had tweeted. 
um, when the book came out. I hope she knows that her book debuted on number one on the New York Times list. I hope that, that she can see this, and I hope that she knows when he gets caught, mm-hmm. she will have helped. Right. And then a month later, mm-hmm. and I was just like, Michelle. Yeah. It felt it felt like I was a part of a moment in history. Right. I, well, I think by, that's true. Yeah. Like, yeah. by being invested in this and watching it happen kind of live on Twitter. Right. I was like, I was here for that. Mm-hmm. Like, the moment that he I got I think people caught. remember, like, when certain people get caught. Like, yeah. Like, big criminals. Yeah. And you already mentioned <clears throat> this, the tone of her book being not exploitative of no. victims. No. And that's one of those things that I wanted to, like, talk about more is, like, how... How do you turn an interest into true crime, mm-hmm. never let it veer into, like, fangirling over serial killers or right. turning other people's misery into a hobby? Right. Voyeuristic. Um, yeah. Of. It needs to be done very carefully. And mm-hmm. there's, like, there's tons of true crime podcasts out there. There's tons of documentaries. And then also, I don't know what the word is for it, but it's... Like, essentially reenactment. They did one of the Michael Peterson murders um, where it's, like... Like, dramatizations. Dramatizations. Mm -hmm. And I know for a fact that they don't consult with the families, even if they have surviving... Oh, dear. The, like, surviving family members are still around. They don't consult with them. The families don't get any royalties off of that if they would even want them. Right. It's very weird to, like, be scrolling through Amazon Prime and see, like the murder of your mother is going right. to be turned into a show and people are like, can't wait to see this. Yeah. It's like, they might not want to profit off of it, but also you shouldn't either. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. I follow someone on TikTok who was like, I was literally scrolling through Amazon prime being like, what am I going to watch tonight? And I've, it was the murder of my mother. Oh, that would be so devastating and so triggering. Like, yeah. And like, you didn't know. And then people being like, Oh, this is going to be so great. I love this one. Mm-hmm. That's very weird. And, like, I obviously have a true crime hobby. Mm-hmm. Not, I don't want to say hobby. I like true crime. It's a genre you like. Yeah. yeah. I like listening to true crime podcasts and investigative podcasts. And I have started to be more selective over the years about sure. which ones I listen to and why. Mm-hmm. And I've started to feel icky about some of the true crime media that I used to consume and have removed it from... Right. That's okay. That's gross. Yeah. That, yeah. And I try and do more research now about mm-hmm. the the things that I do choose to listen to and that I do, do choose to watch. Do you accredit McNamara's book with, like, that turning point for you? Or was it just <clears> gradual? <throat> it was gradual, but I think this might have been the first step. Mm-hmm. Um, because the tone of this book really struck me as mm-hmm. she did not respect or like this guy. Oh, she, no. She was not... She makes that super clear. She hated this man. And the goal of writing this book, and she wasn't true crime obsessed. She wanted him found so that he would go to jail for the oh, rest yes. of his life. And I think the reason she was so stuck on him was there were there was so much evidence. Yes. Like, why can't we find him? That's, a, I, that's exactly what I wrote down. Is I think she was just like, there's so much that could lead to his capture, but nobody's done it. Someone has to do it. Well, I guess it must be me. Like, this is solvable. Someone <laughs> just has to sit down and solve it. And she was not like obsessed with him she wanted him to be brought to justice for what mm-hmm. he did to these people yes and that was just so clear in her writing and clear in the way that the killer is talked about yes. and especially in her letter to the end it was like i am very aware of how you feel about this person and that is not always the vibe that i get when i listen right. to true crime podcasts or read a true crime you, book. you've mentioned it a couple of times and i just have to call out like the book ends on this file that was found on her computer the letter to an old man i'm gonna read portions of it okay go, okay then i'm not gonna do it now because it is it is very good and i yeah. think it encapsulates what you're talking about about yeah. her tone and so i'll just shout out one of the true crime podcasts that mm-hmm. i really do love and respect, which is Crime Junkie. Oh. um, Because they will sometimes do cold cases or things that are, like, still open Mm -hmm. where there are families doing petitions to try and get the case reopened or families doing petitions to try and get um, this something-something overturned or this document released. 
and they're very clear. If you sat and listened to this for 30 minutes for entertainment, you owe it to these people to go sign the petition. Like, oh, you're wow. not allowed. Not even, like, give a donation. Like, just sign a petition. You, yeah, yeah, like, you, you, you don't anybody get... Anybody can do that. You don't get to just be at work and be like, oh, I'm listening to this for entertainment, and now I'm not going to do the bare minimum to mm-hmm. try and, like, actually bring some kind of peace to these people. If you're going to listen to this stuff, you owe it to the people. These Because, it, again, it's real life. It's real right? yeah. people. You owe it to talk about them in a certain way, to talk about what happened to them in a certain way, mm-hmm. and to be a participant in whatever you can. If there's a petition, go sign it. If there's, mm-hmm. you know, something that you can do. And Michelle was very much like that. Yes. She felt like... She owed it to these people that there was so much information that was obviously there that just hadn't been put together in the right order. Right. She didn't know if she was going to be the person to put it together in the right order, but she knew Right. someone has to try, and I'm struck enough by this that I'm going to do it. Right. And it, it kind of killed her. I mean... Yeah, oh, her death is... She hard. got so obsessed with solving this puzzle... And she, you know, started having trouble sleeping because of all the all the stuff in your mind, like, yeah. as you might imagine. And she accidentally overdosed on prescription medication for anxiety and um, insomnia. Mm-hmm. And essentially her dedication to solving this case kind yeah. of killed her. She yes. gave her life to try. And, I would make that connection. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And so that's why when he was caught, it felt very like... You did do it. Like, you... Like, it was a sacrifice. Not in vain. Paid back. Yeah, yeah, not in vain. Yeah, and some of... I mean, she was not the sole person who, like, solved no. this case. And that's... But some... her work did influence what happened. In well, the I was going to ask you, because I've read a little bit online about, like... I feel like there are different schools of thought as to how much she contributed to the yeah. apprehension. I didn't know if you knew more about that or had opinions. I think her bothering (laughs) um, current detectives and pestering people. Right, right. The people who did the actual work were detectives and criminologists and Mm -hmm. whatever. But they might not have done that work if somebody hadn't been calling them all the time saying, have you tried this? You know, have you thought about this? I know this one's really old, but there's still this. I don't know what the first domino Mm -hmm. was for all those people who eventually came together to do this. But it was a very old crime across, like, dozens of counties in California. Which don't always talk to each other. Yeah, so no one unified group was all talking about it and sitting there saying, we're going to solve this, probably until Michelle McNamara called him and was like, I'm doing this. Yeah, I got the impression from my limited reading that, yeah, she didn't, She like you said, she didn't solve it, but certainly the exposure she brought to yeah. the, to this particular criminal and his crimes, I mean, it can't have hurt, right? Like, it, at, at the very least, she brought important, smart people's attention to it and said, yes. have you tried this? Have you tried this? Have you tried this? Which and intellectual, which got them to I mean, do. even in, like, my line of work, when I talk to other teachers, I get other ideas. So, like, yeah. intellectual stimulation for those detectives that she worked with might have been Yeah, and, helpful. like, she had conversations with these mm-hmm. people just saying, you know, what about? Have you ever? Yeah. And that might have been the thing that eventually led to it. And one of the things about this case is that it was the very first case to be solved based on using familial DNA. Yeah, from like those mail order kits like 123andme and com. Yeah, Yeah. and so one of the questions that not this book but this case bring up is what is the ethics of catching criminals through DNA analysis and that's a lot of the stuff that I stumbled upon when I was doing research Mm -hmm. for this that's, and not just, like, DNA analysis, but specifically through those... Through voluntarily, have, like, family DNA. Yeah, that people have paid for. and like, Yeah, which my opinion is... Go for it. If, <laughs> if my great uncle committed murders, uh, go get him. I don't, like, right, right. I don't care if you go get him because I wanted to know if I was... <laughs> right. Oh, that was, like... Have you watched the documentary? I've watched about half of it. Towards the end, when they talk about who he was, like, it shows some of his family members, and it is just heart-wrenching. Because they had 
no idea. idea. None. I mean, and like Michelle puts forth some of the suspects that came to the surface in her book. None of them are the one, guys. Mm-hmm. The, the guy who was it, not on anybody's radar. But the things she thought about him, that he was oh, a police yes. officer, yes. and that he must have moved and he must yes. have done this stuff. Like, she was right about who he was, right. just not his name. And I think if you submit your DNA to a thing... Yeah, I want to I mean, know. Like, first of all, if you've committed a crime where they can get you your DNA, <laughs> maybe don't be a dummy and submit it to a, like, try to find out who your grandma is. Also, don't commit murder. Right. So, if you're dumb enough to get caught that way, that sounds like your problem, sounds, not mine. Sounds like a- And if you're dumb enough to get caught through my DNA because you're somehow related to me, A... Still don't commit murder. Yeah, I mean, and be like that. Don't have anything. That to sounds hide. like your problem, not mine. So, yes. I, you know, for the record, I have no ethical problems. With use it, my DNA. Um, I know that after this case, people like those companies had to start saying whether or not they would release information. Blah blah blah. Well, I guess that's fair. Then you can choose which company you want right. based on that. As I personally consumer. have no issue with it, but I know that some people do, and I guess that that is. Their opinion. But and that's still an evolving, I think, field Yeah, uh, that's getting attention. So I just wanted to say that they they used the DNA from a rape kit sample from mm-hmm. the rape and murder of Charlene Smith. So, And it was submitted to Ancestry websites by the investigators now. Oh. They took that DNA and submitted okay. it. And then they followed leads acquired through that DNA. And a lot of it led nowhere. It was just like... Finding random cousins. I read a little bit, and that's one area I got lost, but they had to, like, backward family tree it And they submitted to a bunch of different ones. It wasn't like they submitted to, you know, 23andMe and found him. Like, they had to do a bunch of different ones, eliminate a whole bunch of people, and eventually came down to six men were possible fits based on, like, age and Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, And then only one of them had blue eyes, which he wore a mask and everyone... Could never see anything of him except for his blue eyes. And after 10 days of surveilling this man, um, which included police enlisting the help of waste management truck drivers Mm -hmm. to um, snatch items with his DNA. Your trash men are important. Yep. Uh, Tip your (laughs) trash guy this Christmas. Um, After 10 days of surveillance, they found a 100% DNA match and that man was arrested. I don't want to give a whole lot of attention to... The man who did it, but the case is solved. A 72-year-old ex-policeman, Joseph D'Angelo, was arrested in Sacramento following this DNA process. It was a 100% DNA DNA match. On June 29th, 2020, he pleaded guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder. A plea deal, um, which removed the death penalty as an option, required that he admit to multiple uncharged acts because, like, the statute of limitations was up. But... The families, the, want, yeah, yeah. the families want to know, we want to know for sure if it's him, so his plea deal was, we'll take the death penalty off the table if you'll tell us this And I stuff. think that's the only way that they definitively linked him to the ransacker mm-hmm. as well. And so he ultimately pleaded guilty to 26 counts of murder and violent crimes against 61 other people. Um, He is currently serving 11 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole and several additional add-ons to those sentences for the other crimes, even Mm -hmm. though the statute of limitations are... Like kidnapping was on there? Yeah, like you can... They tacked on as much as they could. Right, right. This man committed at least 13 confirmed murders, at least 50 confirmed rapes, and at least 200 confirmed burglaries. He is going to be in jail for the rest of his life. Yep. And that's all we really need to know about him. Like, we're not going to fangirl and talk about his crimes or, like, that's him. You can rest easy knowing that he is in jail for the forever. I will say one of the... Did you read any about Bonnie? No. His ex-fiance? No. So I feel like I need to call attention to her just because um, she got, I don't I don't know the right word, some flack, some negative attention. Because yeah, like, you should have known. Some of the, no, it wasn't even that, but some of the victims, because he would say things, obviously, mm-hmm. and they would report it. And he said, I hate you, Bonnie, in multiple mm. of the rapes, and that she was his fiance and broke up with him. 
um, which g- good. Yeah. Good for you, girl. Um, but yeah, when it all came to light, like she got like trolled online and stuff, like which okay. I think is awful. <laughs> Let's just take a second to think about the fragility of men. Most serial killers are white men who feel entitled to women. So if their girlfriend or wife or whatever disrespects them in some perceived way, they go kill other people and rape other people. So no, that's not about Bonnie. That's about male fragility and the absolute audacity yeah, she she is in the HBO documentary as well, because um, she testified to some things. Because he like threatened her at gunpoint, came to her window. Oh, I bet he wasn't a good boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. and after she broke up with him, and then her dad like had a conversation with him that she didn't hear, and she never saw him again. So like, I want to meet her dad. Like, yeah. what did he say to this man that then he never bothered her again? Yeah, the dad who scared the Golden State Killer. <laughs> yeah, yes, and that's exactly you right. get a badge. Like, <laughs> um, I was like, go. Go Bonnie's dad. Uh, yeah. But she was, I I think she's a, a neat lady um, yeah. to see on the documentary and just good for her. Like, Yeah. I'm so glad that no she Bonnie didn't marry Manny. him. And I'm so mm-hmm. glad that she managed to stay safe and away from him. Yes. And don't, and don't hate on Bonnie. Also, as a teacher, the reason she broke up with him is because he wanted her to cheat on a paper for him in college. Oh, <laughs> so I feel the audacity. I know. So he was also oh. a cheater. Um, My yeah. goodness. Go Bonnie. Yeah. <laughs> I have a very edited and condensed version of the letter to an old man. Go ahead. If we want to read that. Okay. It, so It is so good. It is really beautiful. And you mentioned that it was just a file on her computer. That, I'm not sure if she ever intended this to be in the book. Maybe she did. It's written well enough I don't know. They belonged. That's one of the things they talked about on the documentary. They just found this file and they were like oh, this is the end of the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I cut it a lot to take out some graphic stuff and because it was quite long. Mm-hmm. But these are Michelle's words, um, a letter to an old man. Then this is before the killer was caught. She didn't know this Which man. is another cool thing about this book, to know as you're reading it, like, that it was written before he was caught. Mm-hmm. And Yeah. Helicopters, roadblocks, citizen patrols taking down plate numbers, hypnotists, psychics, hundreds of white males chewing on gauze. Nothing. You were a scent and shoe impressions. Bloodhounds and detectives tracked both. They led away. They led nowhere. They led into the dark. For a long time, you have the advantage. Your gait is propulsive. In your wake are the police investigations. The worst episodes in a person's life is recorded in sloppy cursive by an often rushed and sleepy officer. Misspellings abound. Investigators follow leads using slowly dialed rotary phones. If they want to look up an old record, they dig through stacks of paper by hand. The clattering teletype machine punches messy holes on paper tape. Viable suspects are eliminated based on their mother's alibis. Eventually, the case report is put in a file, a box, and then a room. The door is shut. Yellowing of paper and fading of memories commence. Your race is yours to win. You're home free. You can feel it. The victims recede from view. Their rhythm is off. Their confidence drained. They're laden with phobias and made tentative by memory. Divorce and drugs beset them. Statutes of limitations expire. Evidence kits are tossed for lack of room. What happened to them is buried, bright and unmoving, a coin at the bottom of a pool. They do their best to carry on. So do you. And then, after May 4th, 1986, you disappear. Some think you died or went to prison. Not me. I think you bailed when the world began to change. It's true, age must have slowed you. The testosterone, once a gush, was now a trickle. But the truth is, memories fade, paper decays, but technology improves. You cut out when you looked over your shoulder and saw your opponents gaining on you. The race was yours to win. You were the observer in power, never observed. An initial setback came on September 10th, 1984, in a lab in Leicester University when geneticist Alec Jeffries developed the first DNA profile. Another came in 1989 when Tim Berners-Lee wrote a proposal for the World Wide Web. People who weren't even aware of you or your crimes began devising algorithms that would one day help find you. In 1998, Larry Page and Sergey Brin incorporated their company, Google. Boxes with your police reports were hauled out, scanned, digitized, and shared, and the world hummed with connectivity and speed. Smartphones, optical character recognition technology, 
customizable interactive maps, familial DNA. I've seen photos of the waffle stomper boot impressions you left in the dirt beneath a teenage girl's bedroom in July, July 17, 1976, and Carmichael, a crude relic from a time when voyeurs had no choice but to physically plant themselves in front of windows. You excelled at the stealth sidle, but your heyday prowess is no value anymore. Your skill set has been phased out. The tables have turned. Virtual windows are opening all around you. You, the master watcher, are an aging, lumbering target in their crosshairs. A ski mask won't help you now. One day soon, you'll hear a car pull up on your curb, an engine cut out. You'll hear footsteps coming up your front walk. The doorbell rings. No side gates are left open. You're long past leaping over a fence. Take one of your hyper-gulping breaths. Clench your teeth. Inch timidly toward the insistent bell. This is how it ends for you. You'll be silent forever and I'll be gone in the dark, you threatened a victim once. Open the door, show us your face, walk into the light. Ooh, that gives me chills. I know. And that is like almost exactly what happens it to is. him. And she even, She like is a prophetess and I love her. Well, and she even like ends one of those paragraphs with familial, familial DNA. DNA. And that is how they got him. And yeah, it like is. I... I you can also you... just hear her dripping condescension. She like, hates this guy. Yeah. That's what I love is she hates this guy. She's not a Ted Bundy fangirl. Like, she hates him. Yeah. And she knows that he's a sad, yep. sorry SOB who mm-hmm. got old and couldn't cut it anymore in the mm-hmm. real world. And I hope he was scared when he knew what was happening. Because mm-hmm. police don't show up at your door. Oh, for, like, no. I hope he was really terrified. In those 15 seconds, he had to figure out what he was going to do, and he was in his 70s, so he did absolutely nothing. Right, I mean, what can you do? Yeah, so he is in jail now for forever and ever and ever. Um, And part of that letter, too, is one of the things that gave me comfort when I was reading this, because like I said, it was scary. I didn't want to read it at mm -hmm. night. But I also got comfort from knowing, like, I don't feel like this kind of thing could happen today. Without the technology we Mm -hmm. have, it's... It's from a bygone... I mean, obviously, horrific crimes still happen. Yeah. But as far as going on for this long... And happening in the way that it happened, he... And he was, like, living right there. Yeah. He was not far, guys. Truly, like, the things that all worked together in his favor, like, the random happenstances of luck, essentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was, like, in the lights of a police car one time. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was hard. This man got ridiculously lucky a bunch of times... But karma wins out. He got got. And and nobody would get lucky for that long. Yeah. With today's technology. No. It's just So I did take comfort in, in that. Like I said, we don't want to make a big deal about him because he's not a big no. deal. But the victims are a big deal. And yes. so um, we'll link it in our show notes. But the saddest thing I'm ever going to say is, like, he, he has too many victims to sit here and list. We, yeah. we could I would do that if it were ten people, but, but it's not. not. Um, but... GoldenStateKiller.com is a site dedicated to the victims of his crimes. If you want to go and see all of their names and see all of the sentences that mm-hmm. that he got, if you want to learn more about his trial, but especially if you just want to view all of the victims' names, go to GoldenStateKiller.com and obviously, like, the victims' families who are still surviving, and there are many victims who are surviving yes. because a lot of his crimes were rapes. And so... Like, and we're I, on your side. Yes. We love you. <laughs> and if you want to even see their faces, um, the last two episodes of the HBO documentary focus on the victims very heavily. The second to last episode closes out Michelle's story. Like, yeah. her story's done. And then the very last episode is literally just the victims and his sentencing and all of them getting to speak at his sentencing. Yeah. And it ends with this lovely, one of them had all the other surviving victims to her house and they Aww. have this lovely, like, garden party, and it is it is very touching. And I think what Michelle would have wanted yes. um, to be the ending of her documentary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is in honor of all the victims, yes. and please go read their names and mm-hmm. honor them in that way. And mm-hmm. you don't ever need to know this guy's name because he's a No, douchebag. no, he's done. Bye. <laughs> Well, do you want to read a one-star review? Give me some three, some <laughs> one-star reviews. My review is three-star. I, I have three, but I'm just going to give you one um, because I think it just kind of encapsulates enough and it's got a funny button at the end. I love a funny button. That's why we read them. <laughs> like, you know, for the raspberry jam of it all. And yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
so I cut it down a little bit, but this is a one-star review from Courtney Williams. And she does start hers out by saying, like, like, I know a lot of people like this book. Not me. It's not for me. Fair. You know. I could never figure out what this book was actually supposed to be. What was the purpose of this book? Was it the memoir of an obsessive mind, or was it the chilling tale of a serial rapist slash murderer? For me, it was unfortunately neither. The book tried too hard to interweave two separate two disparate stories, and it failed. If the book had picked a lane and stayed in it, I'm pretty sure I would have given it four or five stars. As it was, the book ping-ponged between disjointed bits of the East Area Rapist narrative and then these hem... Ham-fisted. Ham-fisted. That's a fun word. <laughs> chapters devoted to McNamara's personal life. Regarding the East Area Rapist, I honestly felt that the information couldn't have been presented in a more awful way. <laughs> to keep track of what happened when. This guy committed over a hundred crimes. Why not just tell the story in chronological order? That's what I'm saying. That way it paints a much better picture of how his crimes escalated from petty theft to rape and murder. I kept waiting for the sense of terror to grip me, but it never did because one second we're reading about an early crime and then we've jumped back to the 1980s and, oh, look, now we're reading yet another tidbit about McNamara's life where she talks about her true crime blog. True crime blog. It's hard to say. Okay. I guess everyone involved in making this book has never seen Parks and Rec, so let me impart some spectacular advice from Ron Swanson. Never half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing, and that's advice to live by. It is. Yes. And that's more to her editors, I suppose, than to to McNamara She wasn't there to do it the right way, and... I, I love that everyone came together and said this needs to go out into the world. Sure, sure. That's nice of them to be like, we can't drop this. It's too important. Right. They put it together, but not great. I think they, yeah, yeah. Um, next week, one of my your reading. turn. You're reading The Sense of an Ending by Julian Barnes, winner of the Man Booker Prize, and I recently found out made into a movie. Okay, I well, telling me that. it has an award in a movie doesn't mean that. <laughs> you're really you're trying to butter me up, but it won't work. <laughs> so we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to You Might Hate This Book. Join us again next week for more discussion of the books we love. And the books we hate. You can help others find this podcast by leaving us a glowing review and five-star rating. And don't forget to hit subscribe. You can offer additional support and earn cool perks by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash hatethisbookpod. Thank you to Acacia. Yes, thanks, Acacia. Mm -hmm. You can get really cool stickers, and you can recommend books to us. Yes, we will eventually run out of recommendations for each other. (laughs) Special thanks to Montague Workshop. See you next week. Has never seen Parks and Rec, so let me impart some spectacular <laughs> advice from Juan Swanson. Juan Swanson! <laughs> Ron. No! Ron Swanson. I'm starting over. Okay.